0: Alrighty, so we've been going through uh, the book of Revelation, and we're almost done. I mean, we're in chapter 20, part 3. We got chapter 21, chapter 22, and we're done. I don't know about y'all, but I've really been enjoying the journey, and um, I'm look. Hey, maybe we'll just do it all over again. What do you think? Start chapter (laughs) 1? I haven't committed... But I think I'm going to start into First Corinthians when we're done with Revelation. That's my current thought anyway. Unless God puts something else in my heart, that's where we're going. All right, so Revelation chapter 20. Um, we saw previously that uh, Satan was bound for a thousand years. And that kind of launched the millennial kingdom of Jesus. And last time we talked about the millennium, what it's going to be like. How that there's going to be peace on earth... Humans won't have war anymore. We'll beat our swords into plowing uh, shears and, and there just won't be war. And there's going to be peace between humans and animals. And there's going to be peace in nature. Nature will be healed. And death will even be pushed off to the side for a while. But I told you this is only going on for a thousand years. So earth will be like paradise again for a thousand years. But then what? What happens after the thousand years? That's where we're at this morning. And in chapter 20, three things are mentioned to happen after a thousand years. The first one is Satan's going to be released from his prison to deceive the nations again. Then there will be a final battle, and I put battle in quotation marks for a reason. You'll see when I get there. And then God's going to resurrect the judge, resurrect and judge the wicked of all time. All the wicked people ever lived, they'll be resurrected and judged. That's how chapter 20 finishes. And then in chapter 21, we get a new heaven and a new earth. And hopefully we'll get there in a couple weeks. So we're in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Why? Why? I mean, we got him in jail. Let's just be done with it. And it got me thinking. The world's like paradise. Satan's going to be released to test the nations again. The world once was like paradise. And Satan was let free amongst people to tempt them too. At the beginning of human history, there's going to be paradise and a temptation. And at the end of human history on this planet as we know it there will be paradise and a temptation why well i can only give you my opinion but i've given it a lot of thought and there's a few things that i've come come to to believe if you were to give humans paradise and a relationship with god will they walk with god or will they rebel they'll rebel been there, done that. So if you were to remove God from the picture and take people out of paradise and let them live on their own, will they search for God or will they rebel? They'll rebel. If you send people a prophet, even if they don't believe in God, who does lots of miracles and shows that God is real and he's reaching out, will they seek for God or will they rebel? Rebel. That is, Almost all of humanity, there's always those few people, the elect, who look for God. It seems to me that during this thousand years, people are going to have children. And their children will have children, and their children will have children. There's going to be peace on earth, plenty of food. They're going to multiply. So they're going to take a planet that has been devastated by war and repopulate it. And the planet's going to be full of people again. And these people are going to have to make the same decision all the other people in every generation had to decide. Are we going to follow God or are we not? Because God is just about ready to end human humanity as we know it and start the eternal state where there'll never be sin again. So the last batch of people have to make their decision before God can start the whole system or restart it. And so God's going to let Satan do his thing. Now, you would think, I would think, that if I'm living in paradise, Jesus is on the throne, everything's good, people aren't dying, they're living to be like a thousand years old, life is good, I'd be like, yay team. Nothing could be better. Somebody come along and say, hey, follow me, let's, let's fight against God. Get out of here. I got it good. I'm not fighting against nothing. But that doesn't seem to be human history. We seem to rebel against God even when it's good. It's crazy, crazy that. So it's basically the Garden of Eden all over again, but for the last time, so God can wrap everything up. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias the other day on my way to services. You know, he's on the radio in the morning when i'm driving to Bethar shalom so i turn him on i like ravi zacharias he's one of my favorite speakers so and he said something i wish i could quote him just right i can't but i'll paraphrase what he said he said an atheist isn't somebody who doesn't believe in god and thinks they're right he said an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in god and hopes they're right because they don't like god or what he stands for That gives me kind of the idea of what we're looking at when people turn against God. So, Satan is released from his prison into paradise again. Verse 8 tells us what happens. Satan will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, And the beloved city. What beloved city? Jerusalem. Again. This is another time when the world chooses to go against Jerusalem. The last time. Jerusalem is the capital of the millennial kingdom. I pointed that out to you last time. Jerusalem represents Messiah's and God's rule and reign on planet earth. The Jewish people are walking with God like they were supposed to. And so this is the final satanic rebellion against God and against his people. But like the other times Jerusalem is attacked, this one's going to turn out much differently. But before I go there, there's a couple of words in those two verses that have gotten a lot of attention. You know the words. You've heard about them. Gog and Magog. I want to talk to you a little bit this morning about Gog and Magog. If all we had was Revelation chapter 20, we wouldn't know anything about Gog and Magog. But there's also Ezekiel 38 and 39. Those two chapters are about Gog and Magog for the most part. And so I went back to look at them, and I saw that uh, Gog and Magog by name are mentioned over a dozen times in just those two chapters. And then we get a lot of history about what goes on with them. And it might answer some of our questions, and it might not. And I'll explain as I go along. But let me give you one of the key verses. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 2. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now, if you're like almost everybody else, you know that was English. But that's about all you know. Because you've never heard of Gog, you've never heard of Magog, you've never heard of Rosh, Meshach, or Tubal, So you don't know what's going on here. Well, there's a few things we can still gather. First of all, we know that Gog is actually a person. Listen to it again. Son of man, set your face against Gog of or from the land of Magog. Prophesy against him. Gog is a dude. He's the prince of Meshach and Tubal. So Gog is a a man. He's a leader. And he's from the land of Magog. Well, where is the land of Magog? Well, we'll go there in just a minute. He is the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. Now, the Hebrew can read a little differently. The Hebrew can read, he's the head prince of Meshach and Tubal, or he's the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. The reason that could read either way is because that word Rosh means leader or head like the head of something, the head of the government or the head of this. So he's either the head of Roche, or he's the head prince of these other two places. Either way, though, we don't know where Roche is, we don't know where Meshach is, and we don't know where Tubal is. We don't know who Gog is, and we don't know where Magog is. There's two primary theories out there. I'll share them both with you. They both have their strengths and weaknesses. The most popular one is the Russia theory. Magog is from the far north. If you go... On a map, you look at Jerusalem and draw a line straight to the north, you'll hit Moscow. So, it doesn't just say the north either. It says the far north. Moscow is pretty much the far north. You can't get much further. You end up in Antarctica. You start going back around the other way. So, if you just looked at a map and took far north to be the farthest north, you're going to end up with Russia. Ezekiel 38 says it this way. Then you'll come from your place out of the far north... And you and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great company and a mighty army. You will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will be in the latter days that I will bring against you my land, that I will bring you against my land, so that the nations may know me when I am hallowed in you, O Gog, before their eyes. So you'll come up a vast multitude from the far north. Moscow is far north, and that's how they get that. I do want to draw your attention to this, though. It says, I will bring you against my land. God says, I'm making this happen. Why would God bring bad guys against Israel? Well, there's two reasons this happens in Scripture. First reason is to punish Israel. God uses nations to punish other nations, does it all the time. So if Israel's in sin, he will send a nation against them. But he also will in the latter days be sending nations against Israel just to gather them all together so he can destroy them. All right, Moscow is directly north of Israel, as I pointed out. And the word Moscow sounds like the word Meshach. You can see it in another language being the same word. Even though it sounds alike, there's no evidence through history or the study of language that makes it so, though. So it's a common argument. Hey, Moscow is Meshach because it sounds alike. Okay, but give me some proof. Show me a history of the word and how it breaks down from Romanian or Latin or something. None of that exists. Actually, Moscow is named after the Moskov River. So I did a little research to find that out. Then I felt, well, where they named Moskov? Where'd that come from? They don't know. Lost to antiquity. So it sounds good, it sounds feasible, but no evidence. And then also it said Moscow, It said uh, Meshach and Tubal. Tubal sounds like the Russian city Tobolsk or Tobolsk. Again, though, same thing. Just because it sounds like it doesn't mean it is it. So because Moscow is directly north of Israel, and it says the enemy will come from the north, and because Russia has always been Israel's enemy... Russia doesn't like Israel. Russia always sides with the Arabs. People who write modern prophecy books... ...look at it through that lens and say, this has got to be Russia. Maybe it is. I don't know. There's another theory now that's becoming quite popular. It's being um, promoted. It's the Muslim Empire theory. It's being promoted by Walid Shubat. He's a former terrorist, Arab... Um, He's now a Bible-believing Christian and a lover of Israel. He went from somebody who wanted to kill Jews to somebody who promotes Israel. He wrote a book called God's War on Terror, Islam, Prophecy, and the Bible. I've read good portions of the book. It is well done, well referenced, well researched. Um, I have a quote of some of the kind of things he says in the book, but this comes from an accompanying article. ...to back up the Muslim empire theory. Let me just read to you what he wrote. But when we examine some of the greatest biblical reference manuals... ...like the Macmillan Bible Atlas... ...the Oxford Bible Atlas... ...the Moody Atlas of Bible Lands... ...the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Dictionary... ...the New Ungers Bible Dictionary... ...the Catholic Encyclopedia... ...and he goes on. He's making his point in spades... He says, when we examine these, they all locate Magog, Mishek, and Tubal in Asia Minor, or in the landmass between ancient Armenia and Media, in short, the republics south of Russia, but north of Israel, comprised today of Turkey, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Turkestan, Chechnya. And they're all Muslim countries. So his belief is that the evil empire of the latter days is Islam. Well, we can easily understand why he would think that. There are strengths, there are weaknesses to both arguments. The weakness on the the Moscow theory one is we have no evidence. Just sounds alike, but it is the far north. So that's good. The weakness on the, on the Muslim one, um, those are a bunch of different empires, not one. They aren't a country. They're just a philosophy, and it's always talking about a country. I don't know. It, it could go either way. We'll just have to wait and see. We don't know who Gog is. We don't know where Magog is. And to make it even more complicated... We don't even know if the Gog and Magog of Revelation Chapter 20 are the same gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39. We'll see if it's the same words, yes, but they're explained differently. For example, if you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, it's quite apparent that that war happens before the tribulation. But if you read Revelation 20, there's no argument it happens after the millennium. These two things are a thousand years apart. So they may have the same name, but they're not the same entity. And then the way they're explained... ...makes it even more unlikely that they are the same. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, it says they come from the far north. That's it. In Revelation 20, it says they come from the four corners of the earth. That's a different, That's different. So maybe Ezekiel 28 is kind of like the prototype... And Ezekiel, uh, Revelation 20, is the the uber Gog and Magog. I don't know. Either way, it doesn't really matter. Because what we do know is Gog and Magog, whoever they are, wherever they are, are going to be totally destroyed. Verse 9 says, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. I love that verse of the Bible. I told you at the beginning, the battle of Gog and Magog, there's no battle. It's kind of funny. It says they're going to attack An unwalled, secure people who do not live in fear. Well, I can think I know why. I'm not sure. But imagine you've gone through the millennium. Why would you need walls? Why would you live in fear? Messiah's on the throne. There's no war. Everything's good. Now, let's say you're a believer. And you're living in Jerusalem in the future, which there's a good chance you will be when you're resurrected. Come back with Jesus. You get some real estate in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem or whatever, and you're going to live there. And then you're going to be looking at your calendar and your watch, saying, you know, in a thousand years, Satan's going to be released. Well, I'm going to enjoy this thousand years. Let's go fishing. But after a thousand years, and you're still there, no death, you're fine, you're healthy, you're happy. Said, you know what? It's about time for Gog and Magog. Satan should be released any day now. All right. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get the best seat in Jerusalem. And I'm going to look for them to come because it's going to be quite the show. It'll be a spectacle past the hot dogs. Maybe I'll even be a falafel vendor for the spectacle that's going to come. All the believers are going to, no doubt, get up on the roofs and say, can you see them yet? Nope, not yet. Well, look a little harder. Get out the binocs. I I see some dust on the horizon. I think they're coming. All right. No scared. Everybody's excited. Then the ground starts to shake because, you know, there's, it says a vast multitude. And who knows? I don't know. They're going to be on horses. Maybe they'll have tanks, too. I don't know. I don't think they'll be going to be building tanks during the millennium, though. So I'm going with horses. And they're coming to destroy Jerusalem. And I look over to Dave and I say, Dave, they're coming to destroy Jerusalem. And Dave's going to say, Stunad. <laughs> These guys are really going to attack Jesus? Are they stupid? Don't they realize? Like, uh, sin makes you stupid. We know how it's going to happen. Let's just watch. Okay. Jose's going to say, All right, let's sing a song of amazing grace, everybody. We'll start singing. The army's going to surround Jerusalem. And then fire is going to come down and just destroy them all. And then we're going to erupt into praise and applause. Because the last of the wicked of humanity are destroyed. God's going to end all of sin and set up an eternity of righteousness. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. I know, right? It's going to be good times. Then, Satan, who made all this happen in the first place, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire, The lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Three words. Forever and ever. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, if I wanted to make the point that hell lasts forever, I would probably use these words, forever and ever. If I wanted to make a stronger case that hell lasts forever, I could not. I would just take the word forever twice. Forever and ever. There's no other way in human language to make a stronger case. But if hell didn't last forever, that'd be easy. I would not use the word forever. Long time, a thousand years a generation, an age. There's all sorts of ways of marking time. And the reason I bring this up is because there's a huge movement right now, very popular in evangelicalism, that says hell doesn't last forever. Um, but it plainly says that it does. So where do they get this from? I'll tell you where they get it from. God is love. The Bible says so. How could a loving God allow people to suffer in hell forever. Obviously, a loving God couldn't do that, so hell can't be forever. My first response is, well, how do you know that God is a loving God? So well, you don't believe that? So I'm just asking you a question. Well, it says so in the Bible. It also says hell's forever in the Bible. Why are you taking one and not the other? It's very simple to me. Yeah, but I don't understand how a loving God... Okay, I'm with you on that one. So how about you write a book that says you don't understand, but the Bible plainly says instead of just rejecting what the Bible plainly says because you don't understand that's not good Satan is tormented forever and ever some of the people in this camp will say I can understand Satan be tormented forever and ever but not humans wait a minute, Satan's a person too he's not a human but he's a person with feelings and emotions, why would it be okay to torment him forever and ever but not humans forever and ever said you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander it's good for one it's good for the other furthermore we can't even go that route because that very passage of scripture i just read from says where the beast and the false prophet are the antichrist and the false prophet are there too previously it said the smoke of their torment ascends up forever and ever and they've been in there at least a thousand years and they're still there so, there's no biblical justification whatsoever for discounting an eternal hell. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But before I do, I want to finish up chapter 20, and then I'll talk to you a little bit more about this concept of eternal hell. So, Satan, the fire will come down from heaven, destroy this army. Then God's going to resurrect everybody who's ever lived that's evil. Stand them before the great white throne. Here's what the scripture says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So the books were opened. What books? This is the, the symbolism or the metaphor or whatever word you want to use for letting us know that God records everything that we ever do. And on Judgment Day, people will give account for it. It's right there in the book. So it's like the book is opened up and says, okay, George, when you were five years old, you went up to your sister and you kicked her. And when she cried, you told your mom you didn't do it. You remember that? Yeah, I remember that. When you were six years old, you put gum in your sister's hair. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. When you were seven years old, you stuck a, a firecracker by a frog and blew it up. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. When you were eight years old, you stole your kid your, your neighbor's lunch money, and he went hungry that day. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. It's going to be a long conversation kid's only eight years old. we got his whole adult life to go through where it really gets bad. By the time he's done looking at the books, there's going to be no argument from any quarter of the universe that this person is wicked. It's obvious. Look at their life. Totally wicked. And to conclude, I let you live in paradise for a thousand years and you decided to join the Satan to destroy my holy people. (coughs) Throw them in hell. Next, the books were open. And the book of life was opened. Why was the book of life opened? Just to make sure their name wasn't in that one. Because if your name's in the book of life, you're good to go. See, everybody's got their name in those other books. But only some of us got our names in the book of life. And the book of life basically says ignore everything in the other book. And I'll talk about that in a few moments as well. The dead were judged according to to their works by the things which were written in the books the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged each one according to his works then death and hades were cast into the lake of fire this is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire you know the book of life is what saves your soul it's a good name for a church don't you think Book of Life, Community Church. Each one, Death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. Technically, the lake of fire is hell. Hades is not, even though we call Hades hell. Hades is temporary, and it's thrown into the lake of fire, which lasts forever. So the lake of fire is literally hell. Kind of jail versus prison, that sort of thing. Well, based on the passage of Scripture I just read, and another I believe there's different levels of punishment in the afterlife. Verse 13, let me remind you, and this was repeated twice, says, they were judged, each one according to his works. So, we open up George's book, and yeah, he put gum in his sister's hair, and yeah, he blew up a frog, and he rebelled against Jesus. And we open up Satan's book, I mean, uh, Hitler's book. He murdered... Three million children. He tortured countless Jews. Six million Jews. A war that took 12 million lives. He did it willfully and intentionally. Don't you think he's going to get it worse than George? You know he is. Because each one are judged according to his works. Furthermore, Jesus talked about the end of days. And he said this. That servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself... Or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with few stripes. So Jesus said at the end of days, everybody's going to be judged, but people are going to be judged based on their knowledge and their experience. Yeah, there'll be plenty of beaten to go around, it's a metaphor for their eternal punishment, but some people are going to get it worse than others. Remember I told you that there's one book called The Book of Life. And all those other books are about all the bad things we've ever done. And based on those bad things depends on how many stripes you get, how many beatings for the metaphor for punishment. Well, What if somebody stepped in and said, I'll take his stripes. I saw everything Jose did. I will die for Jose, me, the sinless son of God. I will go on to a cross. I will be beaten with a cat of nine tails. And I think, think about that for a minute. While Jesus is hugging that wood and he's getting beaten with the cat of nine tails. Stripes, stripes, stripes. That's Jose's. That's Steve's. That's Lisa's. Everyone who would ever trust in him. Jesus was being beaten. For them. And then he was crucified. And then. God took all. The sin. And guilt of the world. And dumped it on him. All at once when he was on the cross. One of the hardest concepts. In all of humanity. To, to even understand. Could you imagine. The spiritual agony he went through well he said God why have you forsaken me here's the sinless son of God feeling forsaken by his very father why would God do that he didn't deserve it no he didn't but God so loved the world he needed some way of getting us out of the one book and into the other and Jesus said I volunteer I will take all of their stripes. You ever seen that that magic trick? Oh, man, I wish Ted was here. Where they have like a glass of clear water and another glass of like water and they put a bunch of like red dye in it and now it's all yucky water, red water. And then they take that and they pour that into the clear water and it's all clear. I kind of picture it like that. Jesus took all of our filth and he purified it. He was the only one who could. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Please understand that it's not just that your sins are forgiven when you trust Jesus. You are stamped with a permanent seal that says righteous. You're not seen as a blank slate. You're seen as a righteous person. Not just a righteous person... The righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus Christ's righteousness. How awesome is that? And it's forever and ever. If if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Revelation chapter 20. Next time. We're going to look at the new heaven and the new earth. Sin will be gone forever. I might have to take a week to deal with um, the Festival of Tabernacles, though, because it's coming up and we're all going to celebrate it in a barbecue with Bethsaar Shalom anyway. So It's kind of heavy what the future holds, but it's also kind of glorious. Between now and then, what do we do? Just hang in there and do the best you can to get as many people as you can to believe in Jesus. Now, some of you have the gift of evangelism. You'll do it one way. The rest of us will do it another way. We'll live righteous, loving, godly lives, and when we have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus, we will. But let me encourage you this. Even those of you who are timid and kind of afraid to share your faith, ask God to give you opportunities to share your faith ask him. And you say, God, I'm timid, so give me easy opportunities to share my faith. Let me give you examples of what God can do. There was a time I was quite bold. I would stand on the street corner and pass out tracts to tell people about Jesus. I would preach. I would do skits, anything to tell people about Jesus. One day, I'm out on a street corner in Chicago, and a guy comes up to me and he says, and this happened more than once. I remember it happening in Chicago, and I remember it happening in New York. And he come up to me and said, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> Just that. They, they came looking for me. Hey, there's one of those guys, one of those religious guys. I've been waiting to see one of them. In fact, he told me, I've been hoping to see one of you guys. What do I have to do to get right with God? And I tell him about sin how Jesus died for their sins, and if they'll reject their sin and follow Jesus, they'll be saved. I would like to do that. Would you like to pray with me right now to make that decision? Yes, I would. Right there on the street corner, the man receives Jesus, and he's born again. This one guy, the guy in Chicago, he became one of my best friends and the best man at my wedding. And he's still walking with the Lord to this day, leading a Bible study. Some people I've led to the Lord, I've never seen them again. Others I've led to the Lord, they've come back to me months later and said, hey, I just want you to know I'm walking with God. Thank you. This is the real deal. All I did was make myself available. Yeah, but you were bold. Yeah, but my point was in that instance, I had nothing to do with it. I just happened to be standing there, and they came up to me. So pray. Maybe somebody will send you a Facebook post. Hey, I hear you're religious. What's this all about? And you can tell them. Pray for opportunities to share the good news. Please join me in prayer. Lord, not many of us are bold, but we believe. And we pray that you'd help us to share our faith with others because we don't want anybody going to hell either. We know you don't either. You, You sent your son to keep that from happening. So help us to do what we need to do to be Who and what we need to be to help as many people as possible believe in Jesus. And Lord, I also pray that you'd help us live it like we really mean it, that we wouldn't be hypocrites, that we would strive for goodness, strive for holiness and righteousness, that we would be selfless, that we would be kind. You've told us to forgive others even as you've forgiven us. Lord, we find it hard to do, but we shouldn't. Help us to be forgiving. And when we're not, remind us and give us no peace until we do forgive. Lord, you've told us not to be greedy, but to share with the poor. Help us to share with the poor. Help us to do everything that we can to represent you well. For it's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.